Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message from one of our guest speakers. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, how many were here the first service and you're back again? Okay. We'll try to change up the story just a little bit, huh? So Pastor Zach contacted me about a year ago uh, to come and be here. For nine years, Sherry and I traveled full-time all over the world sharing this story and teaching on forgiveness. It was interesting that in 2007, I was pastoring in a community in Washington State, and we'd been there nine years, and God spoke very clearly to me one morning. He said, my church is full of unforgiveness. He said, my people have been deceived into believing they can be wrong with each other and still be right with me. He said, resign your church, go on the road, and begin to tell your story and teach people what I've taught you about forgiveness. The story we're going to share is a story we didn't share for over 20 years. It's a story that we would like, you know, to be different, but this is the story we have, and we believe that our steps are ordered by the Lord. How many believe that? You know, sometimes I argue about those orders. Really, God? Is this really where you want me? Well, I, I believe if we'll keep focus, God can use us in any circumstance for his glory. Daryl and I started our marriage 47 years ago with the plan and desire to be missionaries, to live overseas, to share in that capacity. And we were finally able to um, achieve that goal in 1984. We moved to the Solomon Islands. You may not know the name of that country, but you might know Guadalcanal. We lived on the island of Guadalcanal, and it was a beautiful, primitive nation, people needing to hear the gospel. Sometimes in new works, there are difficulties, and there were people within the church that were having some real struggles with the truth of the word. And uh, after two years of ministry there, a group came with machetes to our home, 17 men in a transport truck with intent on taking the life of myself and the other missionary. Thankfully, with the prayer of the ladies and the help of the Holy Spirit, we were able to talk them down. And then in the weeks and months that followed, it became uh, evident that the violence was not going to cease. And our overseer said, we're going to take you out of here. And uh, one missionary came home on furlough, and we transferred to the island nation of Palau. So uh, you, saw, you saw in that previous picture, our children at that time were almost 11 and almost 12 when we made the shift from one country to another. And Palau is, it looks like just a short hop on the Pacific Islands, but it's actually a completely different culture and different kind of people. And so while we made that transition, we allowed our children to go home unaccompanied and spend time with family. We thought after we arrived in Palau, it would just be a few days before the kids would arrive, but there's only one plane at that time was coming in per week uh, from the States, and uh, that plane had been fully booked. And, you know, not having telephone on our island, you couldn't just call and find out when they were coming. We went to the airport every week for six weeks. Finally, on the sixth week, our kids were the last one off the airplane. And I remember that day well. That was July 3rd, 1986. You see, our daughter, J.D., had her 11th birthday the day before, but she missed her birthday that year as they were crossing the international date line. So the missionary before us had been there three and a half years. They built a house on an outer island. You can see that home. The idea was the perfect house for airflow. So this house was built on the largest of the five islands in Palau. There were only 12,000 people in the entire nation when we arrived in 1986. They had promised the missionary, the former missionary, there would be electricity if he would build here. Well, they promised it. Eventually, they did give it two hours every morning and about two hours every evening. Complicated when your house was built to be electric. And there were other complications with that location. There was no telephone service on that island. And the house was a bit removed from the village. But they had worked very hard. They had a small group of Filipino believers who were there on contract labor. But there were no Palauan believers. 
So the kids had been with us uh, three weeks. The lady that flew out with them uh, stayed with us those three weeks, and we showed them the island, just getting familiar with the place. Every night as we went to bed, long after the power had gone out, we prayed with our kids, God, whatever it takes to reach this nation, we are here to serve you. The night was Thursday night when uh, the gal flew out, and uh, that night was interesting because a tropical storm came through. The house was right on the edge of the sea, and lightning struck that house after we'd gone to bed. It lit up like you were in an old camera flash cube. All the no hairs or the gray hairs know what flash cubes are. Uh, but it was just incredible. The lightning and the thunder came at the same time. It was noisy. I shouted downstairs to the kids, you guys all right? I hear this voice, Dad, we're missionary kids. It's okay. About that time, the house got hit again, and before the thunder quit rolling, the kids were upstairs in bed with us for the rest of the night. And we giggled and we laughed, and we thought, what an adventure this place is going to be. And again, that night we were praying, God, whatever it takes, we want this nation to know you. It was the very next day, Friday, that... Uh, we went throughout the day, had a good day. We went to bed that night, again, prayed with the kids. And uh, we'd been sleeping for a while, and I was awakened by our dogs. Now, we inherited three dogs from the previous missionary. They were watchdogs. They would lay around all day and watch. It's <laughs> about all they were good for, really, eating and watching. Uh, but this particular night, as we were in bed, they began to bark, and I, I was awakened and slipped downstairs to quiet the dogs, and I opened the back door and said, come on, guys, quiet down. As I did that, I got hit in the face with a beer bottle, and bottles began hitting the house and breaking the windows, and I, there were bars on the windows, but they were throwing these, these bottles, and I pulled the door shut and got it locked and moved my kids upstairs. I could hear men trying to get through the other door of the house, and I triggered the alarm. There was a battery-powered alarm that would set off a siren, but three men came in the house with the intent of fighting. And I went from a dead sleep to a fight for my life in a matter of moments. So the men come in. They came in swinging. They came in with their knives. I was stabbed in the side. I was eventually hit over the head with a shotgun, swung like a ball bat that hit me in the forehead, knocked me to the floor got up again to try to defend the family until they beat me to a point I couldn't lift my head. They drug me to our inside. It was a laundry room, no windows, so it was very dark. Put a gun to my head and said, if you move, you will die. I had no strength left. All I could do was pray, and then they turned on my family. Two men came upstairs and began beating me and kicking me and demanding money, and that's when I finally understood why our home had been invaded. I tried to explain to them we didn't have money, we didn't have cash, but they'd pull me by my hair and kick me to the floor over and over again. And then I realized they were going to abuse me with our two children by my side, and I was begging them not to hurt me in front of our children. I was then taken outside and terribly abused by two of the men. A third man took me away from our property across the road to what I thought was a cave. I learned later it was a military bunker left over from World War II, a steel box with a steel door. And there a man continued to abuse me throughout the night. I can't begin to describe the heartache of not being able to protect my wife and protect my children. So my daughter was pulled from my arms and abused. Played Russian roulette with my son when he didn't move quick enough. They'd spin the pistol cylinder and put the gun to his head and pull the trigger. I, I, it was in those times that I was struggling. All I could do was cry out to God. It was in those moments that God spoke to me and reminded me of a scripture. I memorized it probably in vacation Bible school, probably got a candy bar. It didn't mean much to me back then. But in the darkness of night, going through this struggle... God says, Daryl, you need to trust me even though you don't understand. Acknowledge my presence even now and I will direct your steps. In the darkest of night, not knowing if I would live or die, I said, God, I choose to trust you. God was speaking to me that night as well. Pastor Jim, actually, he reminded me of a sermon that I had heard. And in that sermon, the pastor used an example of the three Hebrew children facing a fiery furnace. And when they had no other option, they responded to the king and said, O oh, king, our God is able to deliver us, but if not, yet will we trust him. God was asking me to trust him in that moment. You see, the man who held me captive told me my family had already been killed and I would remain his prisoner for the rest of my life. 
as the hours passed, I assume I was in and out of consciousness because I didn't remember the man leaving the room, but I remember becoming aware that he was gone. I was then able to uh, get my kids. They were traumatized, but they were alive. One was in the house, one was outside, and I got them together. I got the keys to our speed to light vehicle, and I knew at least the three of us could escape. I called for Sherry, got no response, thinking maybe if they left us, they left her. I'm convinced now the man that was holding me uh, with a gun thought I had died. I'm sure I was unconscious. He thought I died, so he laughed. Uh, and I was able to get, get the kids, and with no response from Sherry, I knew my injury was severe, but I didn't know how long I would stay coherent, so I chose to leave the property and go for help. I drove about five miles to a, an American CB camp. There were 13 CBs stationed there doing projects. They had a radio, and I knew they could contact the police department for us. We pulled onto their campus that was surrounded by a big cyclone fence, and I, I had the kids honking the horn, and I went through the gate, and as I go through the gate, these great big German Shepherd watchdogs come out. These aren't like my watchdogs, these are guard dogs. And they, I, I thought, oh God, I survived a beating, now these dogs are gonna eat me. But they came out and they took care of the dogs and there was a medic that began to care for me and my kids. They radioed for help and then it was a waiting game. They wouldn't let me go. I had to wait and pray and wait for an answer. Then there was noise outside this door and I didn't understand what was going to happen to me, but the man who held me captive rushed the door and tried to escape. And then two men outside that door said, Mrs. Beebe, your family is alive. They took me back to our home and in the early morning hours, I could see blood everywhere. I had no idea what my family had endured in those hours that we were apart. Then they said they would take me to where my family was and I got into a little car with them. As I settled in the back seat of that car, God put a song in my heart. I began to sing out loud. In moments like these, I sing out a song. I sing out a love song to Jesus. And then I thought, these poor guys are going to think I've actually lost my mind and gone crazy. And I sang, I love you, Lord. I lift my voice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear. We were re reunited at the CB camp and then taken by ambulance to the hospital in the country. Now, in 1986, with 12,000 people in the nation, the hospital was subpar. I mean, when we went back for trial later, we went to make sure the bill was paid at the hospital. It was $26 was the bill. And I thought we'd been overcharged. I mean, so, but I went off to x-ray, they went off to the emergency room, and it was hours again before we saw each other. Because the surgeon came to me immediately, and she explained what they found in those x-rays of Daryl's head wound. She said they could see that his frontal lobe had been collapsed, his sinuses were completely destroyed. She said his brain tissue had torn and his brain had been exposed. Then she went on to tell me that he would need brain surgery. They gave me very little chance of him surviving and said he wouldn't be, ever be normal again if he did survive. Then she told me, but we don't have facilities here. You need to find a way to get him to better medical care. With that understanding, we left the hospital and went on to the police department. They asked us to fill out reports. They understood we would be leaving the island soon, and they wanted to make sure that they had everything that they needed. And as the day wore on, we went back to the police department. They had three men in custody. They asked us, uh, the children and I, to identify them. There was no one-way glass. It was not at all a safe place as our children looked these men in the face and identified their attackers. Then we went to the airport that night and learned the worst news of this day. You see, the airplane that would fly the next morning was fully booked. So they would remove two passengers, one for Daryl and one for a nurse to travel with him, but we were not considered a medical emergency. I was going to send him away on a, on a trip that would take him 24 hours to get to medical care, not knowing if I would ever see him again, and I would have to wait two and a half days to follow. Sometimes people make decisions without even thinking how they will affect other people. The last thing I wanted to do was leave the country and leave my wife and my kids behind where men had been so cruel. I didn't want to face maybe a life-altering or a life-ending surgery alone. Early Sunday morning, I came by ambulance, and she came with a Baptist missionary couple where they were staying. 
Met him on the tarmac at five o'clock in the morning. The governor of the island came as well. He was our landlord and he came and was there with us. And I prayed with my wife and my kids and committed them to the Lord, not knowing if I would ever see them again in this life. And I got on an airplane and flew out of the country. As Daryl left that morning, I was at my lowest point and I said, God, I can't take any more. It was about a 30-minute drive back to town. It wasn't far, but rough roads. And as we were making that trip, the kids and I began to worship. As we praised the Lord, our son said, Mom, God just told me Dad won't have surgery. And I said, that's nice, son. You see, he hadn't heard the doctor's reports. It was a long, long trip. They routed, the plane routed through Manila with a layover into Guam with a six-hour layover, and then another seven-and-a-half, eight-hour flight to Honolulu. Finally arrived, uh, was met by a team of neurosurgeons at St. Francis Hospital, and they said, we've studied your x-rays. We're anticipating at least eight hours of reconstructive surgery. They said, with a surgery uh, this extensive, all we can do is promise you that we will do our very best. He said, before we go into surgery, I'd like to do a CAT scan just to have a clearer picture uh, in case something is slipped or changed. As he read the CAT scan, he, he looked confused. And I asked him, I says, is it not clear? Do you need to do another one? And he said, no, it's very clear. He said, your x-ray shows all this damage. Your CAT scan shows a number six dent and no damage. He says, all I can explain is I believe God healed you. And God had indeed healed me. He said, I can take you into surgery and remove the dent. Or he said, I can take you back to your room and you can get some food. I'd not eaten since Friday. It was Monday for me, but I'd crossed the date line, so it's now Sunday evening. And I was hungry, and I'm thinking, surgery, food. <laughs> I still have the dent. But uh, I was able to get to a telephone then. Sherry was in the, in the town in Palau where there was a phone. And I called and I, I said, Sherry, I said, God has healed me. I will meet you at the airport. I left that hospital less than 24 hours after I arrived. I've not been back to a doctor for that. I've had no problems, no headaches, no long-term effects. I'm as normal as I ever was. As and as we were praising God, our son said, See, Mom, I told you. God told me. It was about 20 years later, I was preparing a sermon on spiritual gifts to preach on a Sunday. And God spoke very clearly to me, and he says, You need to know when I healed you. And I said, Well, I know you healed me between Palau and Hawaii. And he said, No, you need to know when I healed you. He said, I healed you the moment your son spoke those words to his mom. He said, when I give a prophetic word or a word of knowledge, the moment it is released, I release the anointing to accomplish the purpose for which the word was sent. And I just want to encourage you, as God speaks to your heart, as God gives you a word, release that word and watch the miracle of God unfold. The family was together again in Hawaii. We were beginning to feel safe and realizing physically we were going to heal. But emotionally, we were struggling. And so we went on to Emerge Ministries in Akron, Ohio, and there they began to pray with us, to encourage us, and allow God to do the healing. We hadn't been there very long, and we received a phone call from the Attorney General in Palau uh, wanting us to come back for a criminal trial, wanted us to bring the kids. We prayed about that and felt it was the right thing to do. So in December of that year, we went back to Palau. We were in country eight days, six of those in court from morning till night as they tried three men at the same time with three defense attorneys, one prosecutor. It was a horrendous time. Uh, at the end of that, three men were found guilty of crimes that put them in prison uh, 27 years, 21 years, and 17 years. And with the trial behind us, we redirected our lives. We went on in missions to Tokyo, Japan, actually to Yokota Air Force Base to work with military families. And it was an amazing, wonderful ministry. After about, oh, six, seven months in Japan, we realized our kids were not functioning well. They were both dealing with depression. There were things in the Japanese culture that kept triggering flashbacks. We tried to get counsel. We tried to get help. It was not working for them. 
Our ministry was flourishing, but the kids were struggling, and I've always preached priorities. It's God first, family second, ministry third. I can serve God anywhere. And we got counsel, and through prayer, we went back to the States and began to pastor and invest in our kids. And it was a difficult move to leave missions, but it was the right move. And our kids uh, began to thrive and continue to serve the Lord, and we were so grateful to God for that. And just a, a side note, our, our daughter and her husband are planting a church in Fort Collins, Colorado, and they're doing a wonderful job. They have four children. The oldest will be getting married next um, Sunday, so we'll be going on that direction. And our son had been in ministry for quite a while. He was in the business world, but four years ago we received a call that he had died in an accident while living in San Francisco. So um, knowing that he went on ahead of us to heaven and knowing that God's will is always for us and not against us. And it's interesting as the years have passed, it's been four years now, God has helped us because we begin to celebrate his anniversary date as a year in heaven. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in heaven for a year? Can you imagine? And so we, we celebrate his life. And we don't, we don't struggle anymore. God has brought comfort to us, and we are so grateful for that. Well, we left Palau with feelings of defeat and fear, and we'd always wanted to, to make a trip back, but the door did not open. Uh, about 20 years after we'd gone through this uh, ordeal, uh, we got a call from the Assemblies of God Missions Department asking us if we would consider making a trip back to Palau because there's been a lot of struggle there and they thought maybe if we went back, God could use that to bring revival to the nation. Of course, we were excited. We finally had our opportunity to return. It's 20 years now since this has happened. We called our kids. They're now married and have homes of their own in separate parts of the country. We said, we're going to Palau and you want to go with us, don't you? And both of them uh, individuals said, Dad, been there, done that, don't need to go back, you know. But uh, several days later, they called back and said, you know, maybe God's not done working in us or through us. We do want to go. So we began to make plans to go to Palau. God provided in miraculous ways the funds that were necessary. God gave me a theme scripture out of Second Thessalonians. Uh, chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. And this is how we wanted people to pray for us. We wanted them to pray that God would count us worthy of his calling, that by his power he would fulfill every good purpose of ours and every act prompted by our faith. Most of all, that Christ would be glorified in and through our lives. And we learned that God wants to take what you see maybe as your biggest defeat and turn it into a tremendous victory. We didn't know if people in Palau really wanted us to come. In fact, I don't know if you've had an experience like this, but we were only there six weeks. We didn't believe that when our pebble fell, it even made a ripple in the pond. We felt like nobody knew we came, nobody knew we left. Maybe it really wouldn't matter. But as we arrived in country, we were met by about 60 Palauan people. Uh, they were singing, What a Mighty God We Serve. They had banners. They had flower lays. They gave us a royal island welcome. Uh, the lady to your left uh, was in our church 20 years before. She was one of the Filipino workers there, still in the church, still serving God today. And it was an amazing opportunity. Sunday morning, we went to a beautiful church building. We didn't um, start in a church building, though, did we? Uh, no, we did not. Where did we start? We started in a tin-covered chicken coop out in the Filipino labor line. They had a covered area there for the chickens to get out of the sun, and we just moved the chickens out and put little benches in there. And, and a hot afternoon, we had church, and those were the humble beginnings. But when we arrived in Palau, there's this beautiful facility. And we mentioned there were no Palauan believers when we started with our church. So one thing we were not aware of is they do not wear shoes in the sanctuary. So there were about a hundred pair of flip-flops piled up in the entryway as we came into the church. All of us are humbly barefooted. And as we are there worshiping, we hear them praying and singing in the Palauan language. We'd never heard that before. It was great. Then there was noise at the back of the church and, and some big men walked through the door and I'm kind of looking over my shoulder and somebody whispered, it's the governor and her bodyguards. And the governor came in 
And she asked to speak, and she said, on behalf of the people of the state I represent, even though I wasn't the governor when you were attacked, will you please forgive us for what men did to you? If you will forgive us, perhaps your God will begin to bless the people of our state once again. And it was an incredible morning. And then that evening we shared, and then we asked people to come forward to receive physical healing, and then we were really overwhelmed. There was about 50 people came forward, and we were just giving instructions about how we were going to pray. And all of a sudden, there was an African gal. Uh, she was up front. She's real tall. She's on the Olympic team. She was a high jumper and a hurdler. And she, she began to jump up and down and shout, my knees, my knees are healed, my knees are healed. I thought, well, that's interesting. That's kind of... Then a lady shouts over here, I'm deaf in my left ear. I said, nobody said to shout out your problem. But it, it, it kind of triggered faith, you know, and I, I got up and I headed toward her. I didn't get within 20 feet of her. And she falls down and she jumps up shouting, I can hear, I can hear. And God began healing people all over the room. It was incredible as God was building faith for a week of miracles. And it was going to be a busy week. Monday night was our time to just take a little rest and try to begin to recover from jet lag. We had every other night booked, and I didn't know this night had been booked by the missionary because he told the prison chaplain I'd be thrilled to go to the prison and talk to all the prisoners. <laughs> I didn't want to go. Sherry didn't go. So I took Jeremy and, and we went to the prison, and I thought, well, I'll just introduce Jeremy. He'll do a devotional and we'll get out of there. Well, little did I realize. Now, the men who attacked us, the one that had the longest sentence escaped a year later, and he died in a shootout, okay? The other two brothers were in prison uh, for just under 20 years, one 17, and one got out just under 20. So they weren't there. But the chaplain at the prison, you know, she introduces me by saying, you guys remember these prisoners and what they did. Well, these are the people they attacked. He's going to come and tell his story. Well, I didn't want to be there. So the first thing I said when I got up there, since I usually say what's on my mind, I says, I don't want to be here tonight. Holy Spirit says, they don't want to be here tonight either. <laughs> so I said that too. And they laughed just like you did. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit reached out and grabbed them. I began to share. And then my son shared. Then there was an incredible response. I'll finish that story in a moment. One year after we were attacked, I was traveling, raising funds to go to Japan. Everybody wanted to hear part of the story, and everybody wanted to know my take on why God lets bad things happen to good people. Why, why do things like this happen? I was seated on a platform. Uh, the pastor had not yet introduced me. I was just waiting to be introduced, and all of a sudden, something happened that had never happened before. God spoke to me in an audible voice. He said, Daryl, do you really want to know why people suffer? His response I responded, and, and, and this is what he said. He said, when my son came into the world, I was very concerned about his physical comfort and safety, and what men did to him broke my heart. But I was less concerned with his physical comfort and safety than I was the spiritual condition of this lost and dying world. What happened to you and your family in Palau was of great concern to me, and what men did to you broke my heart but I was less concerned with your physical comfort and safety than I was the spiritual condition of this lost and dying nation. In that moment, I always knew God knew what happened because he's omniscient, and he spoke to me during the process. But now I knew what he knew broke his heart, and I knew there was a higher priority than our comfort and safety. Okay, fast forward now 20 years into the Palau prison. My, I shared, my son shares. Now, 12 men raised their hands to accept Jesus for the very first time. Now, several people had been healed in that meeting. I mean, just dynamic miracles. And, and then he asked people to come to faith, and 12 people respond. He's leading them in prayer. <clears throat> I'm just standing behind him, observing, and just in an attitude of worship and thanks. And God speaks to me again. It wasn't audible, but it was on my heart as clear as it could be. He said, Daryl, had I not withheld my hand 21 years ago, the names of these 12 men would not be in the Lamb's Book of Life tonight. He said, when the comfort and safety of your family was on one side of the scales of time and the souls of these 12 men was on the other, he said, I withheld my hand and the scale tipped in their favor. But he said, never forget, son, when the souls of your family and your soul was on one side of the scales of time and my son's comfort and safety was on the other side. 
I withheld my hand and the scale tipped in your favor. See, God's not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. And he loved you enough and he loved me enough to withhold his hand and allow Jesus to pay the price for our sin so that we could spend eternity in heaven. But we're not just in the family of God, we're in the army of God. And there may be times that God withholds his hand and allows you to go down a path you don't want to go down. But if our steps are ordered to the Lord and we're leaning into Jesus, we're where he wants us to be. And there may be times God allows his best soldiers, most trusted soldiers, to go through the most difficult circumstances so lives can be changed. So when you're traveling this journey called life and you find yourself dealing with things, and you're on a path you didn't want to be on, remember, God's got you. He's got your back, and he's going before you, and he may withhold his hand so a life can be changed for all of eternity. Trust him. Walk with him. Stay mission-focused. It was a busy week. Wednesday night, we invited all the leaders of the nation to a diplomatic dinner. We wanted to honor them. We wanted to share with them. Well, that tiny nation has 17 states. That's 17 senators, 17 governors, the presidential cabinet. They still honor the chiefs. Everybody's a politician. And we invited them all, and we were thrilled to have about 65 of the leaders come that night. Pictured as the former vice president, the one at the time, Elias Chan, he came. And Senator, we had just a big crowd of people. We shared with them. I thank them for the way they cared for us. They also cared for another missionary family not too many years back that, that actually were attacked, and the husband and wife and son were killed in that attack. The daughter was left for dead in the ditch. Uh, as the years have passed, she's grown up now and with a heart to go back to Palau as a missionary. So you can keep her in your prayers. But uh, we shared with these gentlemen, and then afterward, the, the, the vice president, he asked to speak on behalf of the nation. He asked our forgiveness. And then afterwards, some of the senators come up and governors said, we were anticipating a government coup this week. But having heard this message of forgiveness, we believe we can make it through without that happening. And it did not happen. We were also able to honor the two men that rescued my wife. We found them, just village men, and they were honored in front of the leaders of the country. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, we had open-air meetings planned, and we had secured the largest facility in the nation. That's the track and field stadium. So on Thursday night, as we were preparing um, to start, people were coming in, and we were just greeting them. And as we were greeting people, one of the men said, I want you to meet. And the next thing I knew, I was looking into the eyes of one of the men who'd attacked us. Told my daughter, you might want to go the other way. I'm going to talk to this man. The next thing I knew, my wife and my kids were at my side, and we were able to extend personal forgiveness to this man who changed our lives forever. We prayed that, his latter, that he would come to understand the forgiveness that we found in Christ, that his latter years would be more blessed than his former years. Just a quick side note, we were in Ponape two years ago preaching the general council for the Assemblies of God. One of the men came up and said, I met one of the men who attacked you, and this man had come to, to faith and, and, uh, in the process, and we, we, we didn't even know his story until two years ago. Actually the brother. The brother of one of the, this man. And uh, so great, great story. So then we realized this was actually a national event. They brought the high chief in, and he was going to introduce us and welcome the people. The, the high chief would be king if they weren't a democracy, so he carries a lot of weight. He got up. We didn't know a thing about the man. We're on national radio, the only radio station in the country broadcasting across the airwaves. He said, 20 years ago, the Beebe family came to our nation with a message that would have changed our lives, but men almost killed them. Today, they've come back with the same message of hope, healing, and forgiveness. And if you'll respond to this message tonight, your life will be changed not only for today, but for all of eternity. We were given permission, and they were given permission to respond to the gospel message. And that night, over 100 people received Christ as their Savior. And then we invited them forward to receive healing. And as the track began to fill, God began to perform amazing miracles. Everyone who prayed, every one of our team who prayed for someone that night, saw the healing happen. We didn't hear of anybody that prayed and the miracle didn't come that night. I've never experienced anything like that. The lady in the white shirt, she was the one healed of the deaf ear on Sunday night. She prayed with this little girl that was deaf and God opened her ears. I joined them praying for another little girl that was deaf and God opened her ears and God just began to do amazing things. 
Friday night we had a miracle like we have never seen before. They had forecasted inches of rain to come during that outdoor event. And uh, we got through, they said we should cancel, but we said we've advertised it, we're going to go ahead. And uh, we got through the worship with no rain, the wind was blowing, the clouds were moving. But when I, I, my son was speaking, he was about five minutes into the sermon, and I could see the rain coming. I could just see sheets of it. It got to the stadium. He felt the first drops on his head as he was preaching. He said, clouds in the name of Jesus, hold the rain till we're done with God's business. He went right back to preaching. I watched it rain around that stadium, all the way around it for another hour as he preached, as people got saved. It rained, but not inside. It was amazing. The radio station owner that was a senator that was there, he said, I've never seen a miracle like that. Even the clouds obeyed that young man. God did amazing miracles in Palau. And he continued every moment. We left late Sunday night. We had church services, many more miracles there. But as we were flying late Sunday night, the Lord spoke. And... He said, Sherry, you endured eight days of a criminal trial that you thought were too much for you. He said, I have given you eight days of miracles. Anything Satan tries to steal or destroy, God returns in bountiful ways. So God told me to go on the road and tell my story, but then he said, teach people what I've taught you about forgiveness. So this is, the mo this, this is just the most important thing we can share with you now. You know, we told you our story, but listen to what we've learned. We live in an evil, sinful world where people hurt people and hurt people hurt people. We've all been hurt by what others have said or done. We've probably all said or done things that have hurt people. It's not if it's going to happen, but what do we do when it happens. Now, we don't dare allow what people have said or done to us to determine who we become. We've chosen not to be victims. We've chosen to be overcomers. But we still had to deal with the circumstances and the ongoing effects of what happened. And our lives were affected by the wrong choices of others, and we did struggle to sleep. We struggled with memories and, and reliving this over and over and over again. We struggled with anger in ways we didn't even know was possible. During the trial, I, I had the, most, the strongest temptation in my life to kill people. I had just testified for about three hours. There was a court break. I was on a very small balcony. They brought, it was the only place to get any fresh air. They brought the three men that attacked me out to the same balcony. There was a police officer standing between us, and on his hip was a 9-millimeter pistol. Guns are illegal in Palau for the common person. When we got back to America, I grew up hunting, never owned a pistol, but I bought a pistol, got a concealed weapons permit, and I became very proficient with that pistol because nobody is going to come into my house ever again and harm my family. As I looked at that pistol and these guys sneering at me, I thought, all I've got to do is push with my left hand and pull that pistol and I'll take them out and they'll never hurt anybody again. Because I just relived it all. It's like it just happened and I was raw. And I was looking and I'm looking at the pistol and just processing. I hear this still small voice that says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Then I heard a verse out of Philippians 127. You conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. In that process, I obeyed. And here's what I learned, that hurt feelings never motivate right action, but God's truth will always motivate right action. Just to let you know, God is faithful. God is faithful. He takes care of us. And we continued to tell the Lord that we forgave these men, but then there would be a memory or something would happen and we would feel the pain. And the enemy would say, you didn't really forgive. And we said, what's going on? We grew up, I grew up knowing the Lord. I've been to Bible school. We're pastors. We're missionaries. But forgiveness isn't working. Because every time we'd have the memory, you know, I think, well, I, I said the words. So I opened the Bible and began to read because my mama told me. And my mama taught me the truth is in the word. Their dad taught me, read the word. So I read the word, and I'm reading about Jesus on the cross read it many times, but now what stood out is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And then I read about Stephen. Father, don't hold this charge against them as he's being stoned. I said, Holy Spirit, teach me this kind of forgiveness. We're going to share with you in the next moments five keys to freedom through forgiveness. We have an enemy that doesn't want us to walk in freedom. He desires to outwit us and take advantage of us. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. I, I, I like to hunt. I hunt with archery, and I was all camoed up one time, and I got... I worked into a herd of elk, and I was really close and had been in the herd for almost an hour before I got the shot I wanted. When I let the arrow go, the animal just looked at me. The arrow found its mark, but the animal looked at me. He didn't know what it was, and he knew something was odd, but he wasn't sure what, and he began to eat, and he ate for the next six, seven minutes, and then he just crumpled right where he was standing. Why would I share that with you? For this reason, the enemy wants to get arrows of bitterness and unforgiveness in you and you not even realize he's there. I was right there watching as that animal finally gave in and died. The enemy wants to steal your life from you and the scripture says, don't allow him to do it. Don't let him outwit you. Don't let him render you ineffective and unproductive because the enemy is a thief. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. You know, I can grab this earring right here and I can move her anywhere. Why? Because I've got a hold on her. Little boy with the big water buffaloes in the Philippines, he can care, move that big water buffalo because he's got a rope in his hand tied to a ring in the nose and he pulls that, that animal turns. If the enemy's got a hold on you, he'll lead you where you don't want to go. He'll keep you from going where you want to go. And one of the things we learned is for the child of God, forgiveness is a command and not an option. Let me share a familiar scripture with you. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Don't get so familiar you gloss over important truth. Considering forgiveness, if you do, God will. If you don't, God won't. So forgiveness also is a choice and not a feeling. I never felt like forgiving the men who attacked us. I felt like attacking them and getting even. That's what I felt like. But Jesus knows that if we don't forgive people, the enemy will get that stronghold in your life. Now, I'm thankful we have weapons of warfare that are mighty that can tear down those strongholds. And forgiveness is one of those weapons through the truth of God. But the reality is here is we must choose out of obedience to be forgiving. I was reading Matthew 18 one day, and I was reading about uh, the man that owed this great big debt. He couldn't pay it, and he was going to go to jail with his family forever you know, until they died. And he begged for mercy, and he was forgiven the great debt. But then he went out and found somebody that owed him a few days' wages, and he had the man thrown in prison. Listen to the end of the parable. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, a parable is an earthly story that teaches a kingdom principle. After the parable, Jesus said these words in verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Does it mean that if we live a lifestyle of unforgiveness, that it's possible that debt that was forgiven could come back? I don't want that ever to happen. I want to be forgiven and I want to be forgiving. We learned that forgiveness is for your benefit, not the benefit of the offender. The enemy lies to us and wants us to believe that if we forgive someone, we'll lose our power over them to cause them pain. I've heard people say, well, I'll never forgive them. They ruined my life. I'm thinking, well, how's that working for you? Because what it does is it leaves the doorway open for the enemy to continue to use that against us to steal, kill, and destroy. So we learned that forgiveness benefits me. How does it do that? It closes the door the enemy uses to continue to steal from me. Now, one of the things that's important to understand that just because we forgive doesn't mean they're no longer responsible to God. They are responsible to God for what they've done. He can hold them accountable. I release them 
I've already borne in my body and through my experience the pain of their action. I don't want to continue to let them steal from me. So when I choose to forgive, I am doing myself a favor. It will benefit me. And forgiveness must be specific and not general. Wouldn't it be nice if we could say, I choose to forgive everybody for everything and poof, away it goes? doesn't quite work that way. But uh, l listen to, to, to this verse in uh, Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. We, we came to church today and we began to worship. And worship is offering your gifts to the Lord. If when you're doing that, you're aware that something you've said or done has caused someone offense, worship is no longer your priority. It says, leave your gift, first go make that right. Even if they misunderstood you and they heard what you didn't mean to communicate, but you're aware that they've been offended, do everything you can to live at peace with all people. But sometimes it's not just other people offending us, it's sometimes we offend other people. So if we know we've offended him, the onus is on us. But if other people have offended us, listen to this verse in Mark 11. Mark 11, 25, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. The Lord really used this in a different way in my life because the men who attacked us in Palau were strangers to us. But as I was growing up, there were people who hurt me much more deeply than these men ever could. And what I had done is I had built a wall around myself believing if people couldn't get close, I couldn't be hurt anymore. But the Lord would speak to me and say, that's not forgiving. And I said, God, I don't know how to forgive so much. And he said, you need to forgive each time a memory comes. And so as something was reminded to me, I'd say, Lord, I forgive that. And I forgive that. And it taught me two things, that the forgiveness would help to break down the wall that I had built around myself, allowing me to truly be in relationship with people. And it taught me a lifestyle of forgiveness because some of those people continued to be hurtful until the day they died, but I have had freedom. Then we learned uh, that forgiveness is a process or a journey, not an event. Remember, we'd said the words, but we didn't realize that forgiveness was not just something you say. It needs to be a lifestyle. See, every time we had the memory and there was pain, we thought we hadn't forgiven. The reality is we began a journey, but didn't realize it was a journey. Every time uh, the memory has pain attached and you've chosen to forgive, stay in the journey. Continue to be forgiving until you have the memory and the pain is no longer there. That's how you will know that your forgiveness journey in that area is complete. Now, you might be beginning a journey in one circumstance with an individual, be partway through another one and be completing another one. It's, it becomes a lifestyle. But we realize that you're going to live with the consequences of what happened to you, either in the bitterness of unforgiveness or the freedom of forgiveness. Lewis Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was me. Forgiveness will set you free. The five keys to freedom through forgiveness. Forgiveness is a command and not an option. Forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling. Forgiveness is for our benefit, not the benefit of the offender. Forgiveness must be specific and not general. And forgiveness is a process or a journey, not an event. Now, I want to talk to you just briefly. If you are here today and you've yet to receive Jesus' forgiveness, you, 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 you've not trusted him for your eternal life. You've been depending on your own good works. I want you to know that the greatest forgiveness ever is the forgiveness that Jesus offers to us. If Jesus already paid the price for your sin, why not take advantage of it? The scripture even says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we could literally just call out and say, Jesus, what he said, I need that in my life. If you want Jesus to forgive you, to say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I need your help. And as you do that, he will forgive your sin. 
And if that's you today, as you, you go out today, go by the connection booth out here and just say, hey, this morning I, I asked Jesus to forgive me. What do I do now? They'll connect you. They will help you begin this journey of walking with Christ. Today our focus is, is, is mainly on dealing with issues among the body, issues in the family, forgiveness issues, because where there's unforgiveness, there's every evil work. And God wants you to be in unity because unity positions you for the miraculous. And I want you to walk in unity so you can see God do everything through your life that's possible. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer this morning. It's a prayer to begin a journey of forgiveness. It's a responsive prayer. In the middle of the prayer, it says, I choose to forgive... And when I say that, when you get there praying out loud so the devil hears you, because he can't read your mind, but you're choosing to forgive, I choose to forgive, say who it was, what they did, and how it made you feel. Now, you don't have to shout it. They might be sitting near you, okay? But say it loud enough so the enemy can hear you that you begin this journey. I want you to stand with me this morning and pray with me as you enter this journey of forgiveness. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, in obedience to your word, in obedience to your word, I choose to enter. I choose to enter this journey of forgiveness. This journey of forgiveness. Please forgive me. Please forgive me for the times I have hurt others. For the times I have hurt others, and for my unwillingness, and for my unwillingness to forgive those who have hurt me. To forgive those who have hurt me. I choose now to forgive. I choose now to forgive. Right now, just say who it is and what they did and how it affected you. And as you do that, as you choose to forgive, strongholds will be broken. The truth of God, the weapons of warfare are mighty that pulls down these strongholds through forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. We choose to forgive. now I bring the finished work of Jesus Christ. And now I bring the finished work of Jesus Christ. Between me. Between me. And what was said or done to and me. And what was said or done to me. Closing the doorway. Closing the doorway. Of unforgiveness forever. Of unforgiveness forever. Thank you, Jesus, for freedom and for peace. And for In peace. Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've begun a journey that will lead you to freedom. Now, tonight's service, okay, it's something you normally do, I think, once a month, but tonight we're going to be here because forgiveness opens the doorway for physical miracles. I just want to challenge you. If you've been dealing with physical issues and you've not found the answer, there's a good chance it's a spiritual attack manifesting in the physical. Unforgiveness hinders healing. Forgiveness opens the door for healing. If you need a healing, if you need a miracle, or you know somebody that does, you come out tonight. We're going to teach you about it. And as we teach, God's going to be healing people in the house tonight. He is the healer. I've experienced his healing. I've watched God work. And I want to help you learn how you can minister healing to other people. So when we're gone, you can continue to do the same thing. So I want to encourage you to come out. We'll have our books and DVDs out back. We'll be there to, to meet you. And we just encourage you, if you get the DVD, you can take it, you can copy it and give it to all your friends. But just keep a copy so you've got one when you need it. God bless you. It's been a joy to be with you.